Thank you, Corbin. Welcome, everyone. Uh, if we haven't had the pleasure of meeting yet, my name is Cassie Farron. My husband and I, uh, co-pastor, we lead this community of Jesus followers together. Uh, he would love to be here today, but yesterday uh, we're actually out to lunch with some friends, and we get a call from a fellow pastor in town, and he goes, hey, I've got the stomach flu, and I have no one to preach for me tomorrow. Would you be willing? So beauty of us being co-pastors. Alex is preaching at a different church this morning, and Cassie is here preaching. That's a first. Uh, so uh, greetings from the both of us. You would have loved to be here, but it's so good to have you all here today. It's also good to be back with you all uh, because it's been a while. Uh, Alex and I, obviously, we've been around, but we haven't preached for the last uh, month or so, uh, taking a little bit of time and rest. We kind of build that into the rhythms of the church and allow other voices to be heard, to be seen, um, to be understood. And so grateful to so many of the pastoral team and even the leadership team here uh, for the how you step in, how you help. Uh, it's a wonderful thing to be the family of God, right? Uh, so story time. Alex and I, we are at Jose Peppers on January 2nd, 2023. Anybody love Jose Peppers? Oh, oh man. I know. So Joe Gonzalez is shaking his head up here because Joe's take us to some legit Mexican restaurants here in town. I know it doesn't compare. But guys, to me, Mexican food is Mexican food and Hispanic food is like a major food group in my diet. So we're at Jose Pepper's. Thank Jesus for Mexican food. And uh, we are watching the Bills-Bengals game like any good Chiefs fan would because, as you know, if you're a football fan, uh, that game was supposed to determine whether we had the number one seat in the AFC or not, right? Uh, and Alex, if you were here, would be so proud of me because I've learned a lot about football in the last couple of years, and I was not there a few years ago. Uh, but super excited about this game, right? We're watching it, and some of you guys know where I'm going with this. We're eating our chips and salsa. And all of a sudden, on the screen, we see one of the most frightening moments in all of football history. Damar Hamlin, 24-year-old, uh, looked to be like a, a normal sack. He's tackled, um, but instead of just getting right back up and moving on with the game, he collapses on the field. And uh, you'll notice if you're on social media or if you uh, just even like looked on the internet on your news app, people immediately took to social media, right? So concerned for this 24-year-old's life. He's carted off the field in an ambulance, taken to the local hospital. They cancel the game. And the public outcry for DeMar in that moment is pray for DeMar. It didn't matter uh, whether you were religious at all, sportscasters, uh, different public figures, coaches, right? Those that were on the teams all gathered around crying out to a higher power, save DeMar's life. And this response, to a certain extent, is a really beautiful one, right? Because it reminds us yet again of humanity's pull towards the supernatural, to the spiritual, to say there's got to be something up there that's higher, that's more powerful than me, that can intervene in this situation when I feel like I can do nothing, right? This draw, this pull towards spirituality, to a God, 
Research actually shows us that this phenomena is a really common thing despite the decline in religious affiliation in both the US and Europe. And in fact, in the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization in 2021, they kind of did this study of Google prayer searches in 2020 and 2021 related to COVID and found that people Googled prayer more than they had ever before. Prayer Google searches rose on all continents at all levels of income, at all levels of inequality, at all levels of insecurity, and for all types of religion except for Buddhism. And I do not know why. If you want to look, go and find the study. You're welcome to look it up. But that's what they found. Regardless of a religious affiliation, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of the place that you lived, people were crying out, wanting to learn more about prayer. And the researchers concluded that the global rise in spirituality or religiosity that we had seen in 2020 and 2021 was because when people are faced with difficulty, they pray. People pray to cope with adversity. As evidenced by Damar's accident, the pandemic, and just simple human common sense, culturally, prayer has become a little more than a means of feeling comforted, a way of feeling less anxious, a way of feeling less lonely, a results-based form of self-therapy. Sky Jahani uh, puts it this way in his book, What If Jesus Was Serious About Prayer? Quick side note, I'm going to reference this book a lot in this sermon. It's a really good one. Super short. Go and read it. Uh, but he says this, our culture is increasingly abandoning anything that resembles Orthodox Christianity in favor of a generic or sentimental kind of spirituality. This has caused many, including those within the church, to embrace a distorted vision of prayer. They seem to think that prayer is little more than a form of self-therapy with a spiritual facade. In some places, it's even seen as self-improvement, a practice of self-improvement that any health-obsessed person should do, like working out or eating quinoa. Could it be that this really distorted view of prayer has leached into our churches, maybe even into the hearts of Jesus' followers in this room. If I'm being honest, I think I've let this results-based self-therapy vision of prayer seep into my own soul and my own heart. And this leads us to our main idea for today. Christian prayer should be concerned with relationship, not with results. To whom we pray is so much more important than how we pray. If you want to go ahead, uh, take out your phone, use that gathering guide or Go to your Bible app. Maybe you've got your physical Bible today. Go to Luke 11. This is where we're kind of going to be camping out for the rest of the sermon. Uh, and then production team, we've got a like drawing. If you would pull that image up, uh, and then we'll just kind of keep that image on the screen when there aren't other slides going. 
Uh, this image right here, for those that are visual learners in the room, I find to be super helpful. Uh, anytime at any point in this sermon, when you find yourself distracted on thinking of the how in prayer, I want you to think back to this slide. Who is interested in relationship, right? What, when, where, why, and how is a prayer concerned with results? When we examine the Gospels, we see that Jesus prayed differently than his contemporaries. Unlike the religious elite of his day, Jesus spoke in Aramaic, which was the common language or the common tongue. Most people spoke in Hebrew, which was the more formal language when talking to or about God. Jesus was often informal, even casual, as he talked to his father or about him. And this difference is what leads the disciples in Luke chapter 11 to say, Lord, why do you pray the way that you pray? It's so very different than the prayers that we experienced growing up. Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus responds to his requests, their requests, with arguably the most famous prayer in all of history, the Lord's Prayer. This prayer for Jesus followers has become both a pattern and a script for those in the Christian tradition. It guides us in how we are to pray, and it's also a prayer that we say and regularly recite. It's the place in scripture that we go when we ourselves wonder, Jesus, how do we pray? Culture has a whole narrative for how we are supposed to pray, but Jesus, how do we pray? This is why for the next several weeks, we're going to actually spend our time in the Lord's Prayer leading up to, pray, leading up to Lent, excuse me, examining how we pray. Jesus, teach us to pray. First week, we're going to talk about communion. That's this week. So how do we commune with God? Second week, contending. Third week, petition. Week four, how do we pray in confession? And week five, prayer through mission. And so this week, to kick off our series, we're going to focus on communion. That first line of the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven. And again, this brings us back to our main idea for today, to whom we pray is much more important than how we pray. Jesus begins the Lord's Prayer reminding us that our communion with God as Father is the very foundation for all of prayer. It's the starting place. It's everything. The who of prayer is God our Father. I want to just take a brief moment, brief aside, to say with the breakdown of the family in our current culture, those words, our father, may feel really problematic to you. And I don't want to discount those feelings. I don't want to discredit those feelings. In fact, those feelings are extremely important and valuable and a necessary step in your faith journey. But today, we don't have time to dig into all those in, uh, intricacies. Uh, if you want to dig a little bit more into that, I actually did a sermon called The Father Almighty in our Apostles' Creed sermon. I would encourage you to go back to that. It deals with some parental wounds, different things like that. And if you're really struggling with that parental relationship, if God as Father, I want you to go look at that sermon. 
But today, we really want to focus on what it looks like to define the who of prayer, which is God our Father. This opening line would have been extremely shocking for the disciples in the first century, and not in the same way that it necessarily would be for us today, although maybe there are some similarities. Uh, first of all, it would have been really shocking to them because God was never referred to in an intimate way, as I mentioned before, right? He was always referred to reverently, formally. You can picture a whole lot of thou's and these and holiest of holies and I am not worthy, which all of those things are good, right? But in two words, Jesus extends his intimacy with God to his disciples, to the whole audience, and to every single one of us. This is like a whoa, drop the mic moment. This also would have been really difficult for the disciples because they had a very different understanding of who God was. See, prayers in the first centuries for both Jews and non-Jews were generally formulaic in approach. They used words specifically to compel God to act, right? If I just say the right thing, if I just do the right thing, God will finally do what I want. And this led many people to believe that God looked more like a ruthless dictator, a vending machine, a genie in a bottle, than a loving father. Our Father in heaven. Four words that completely change the way that we relate to God and the entire nature of prayer. In defining the who, Jesus changes the why, the when, the where, the what, and the how of prayer. And so today we're going to actually pick up here in Luke chapter 5, or sorry, excuse me, Luke chapter 11, verse 5. I think Jesus knew these concepts were going to be really hard for the disciples to understand. And so he clarifies with a few stories in a very Jesus fashion, right? And this is what he says about our Father God. Jesus said to them, the disciples, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And the neighbor will answer from within saying, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. Hello, if it has been the middle of the night for any of you and you have kids and somebody wakes you and your kids up, it's like there's no graver sin, right? It's like, I don't care who you are. Why did you wake, more importantly, my kids up, right? Now I got to get them back to bed. That's what this neighbor is saying. And then Jesus says, I tell you, Jesus tells you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, keyword, we're going to go back to that, impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. This story uh, has historically been misunderstood by many, and it's been used to justify a narrative that we must twist God's arm to act. 
We must knock long enough. We must yell loud enough for God to do something. This misunderstanding actually lies in the Greek word interpreted here as impudence, but a lot of other translations translate it to persistence. So because of the friend's persistence, the neighbor will rise and give him what he needs. To get what we want, we have to ask God over and over and over and over and over again. However, this interpretation of this particular story does not necessarily make sense within the context of God as a loving father, sandwiched between the Lord's prayer and the story that immediately follows it. It doesn't make sense with the simplicity of those latter verses, ask, get, seek, find, knock, open, simple, right? And then this seems to make it complicated. Like, wait, I have to ask longer? I have to seek longer? Being that that doesn't necessarily make sense, right? We've got to dig a little bit deeper into the cultural context here. Many have actually suggested that a better translation of that word impudence would be shamelessness or without shame. According to Sky Jahani, ancient Israel was an honor-based culture and highly communal Similar to maybe some of the Asian cultures of our day or even some of the Arab cultures of our day, highly communal, community-based, not individualistic at all, which is where we come from. A person's reputation was of paramount importance, and their reputation was inextricably linked to their extended family and the community. In America, when I do something wrong, the shame fully comes on me. But in a more communal society, when I do something wrong, I've shamed my entire community. Failing to provide bread to an unexpected visitor, which is the core problem of Jesus' story here, would not only bring shame upon an individual, but the entire village, on the neighbor themselves. So this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that that sleepy neighbor's friendship won't motivate him to act, to get out of bed, to wake up the kids and help. But the neighbor's desire to be hospitable and to protect the reputation of his village will. It's as if the neighbor is knocking on the door saying to his neighbor, I know you will get up and give me bread because you're of your reputation as an honorable, honest, hospitable member of our community. This point is remarkably simple. Here's what Jesus is saying. God does not answer prayers because of our reputation, but because of his in one simple story, Jesus takes the focus of prayer off of us, off of our own righteousness, even off of our dedication to God, and he places the focus solely on God's desire to retain his reputation as a good and loving father who gives his sons and daughters what they ask regardless of the quality of the asker. He says it's not about you at all. This idea contradicts literally every religious impulse that we have. Prayer is all about our Heavenly Father, who is holy, righteous, devoted to us. Prayer is about the who. 
Jahani says this, prayer is not a religious way of nagging God. Prayer at its most fundamental level is simply asking God to be God. Um, Sam Roberts is uh, one of our pastors here at Midtown. I think she's down with the kids today. Yes, she's down with the kids today. And um, she's an amazing mom. If you know Sam, she's an incredible full-time mom. Shout out to all the full-time parents out there. I don't know how you do it. Um, and she's got three kids. Her and Justin have three kids. He spoke last week, did an awesome job. Uh, their names are Zeke, Avery, and Ellie, okay? And Ellie is four years old. So if Ellie went up to Sam and she goes, mom, I am so hungry. And Sam looked at her and said, well, Ellie, have you done the dishes today? Have you mopped the floors? Did you brush your teeth? Did you dress yourself and your siblings? Did you do all of the chores? I only give food to obedient children. We would look at Sam and we'd be like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> like, what happened? Get it together, right? I use that example because Sam's nothing like that. Just amazing mom. No, right? Ellie comes up to Sam and she says, I'm hungry. And Sam does not give Ellie food because she's a good girl. She gives Ellie food because she's a good mom, right? God does not answer prayers because of our reputation, but because of his. And he is to be known as a good father. To whom we pray is so much more important than how we pray. Food, this provides a really good segue into our next story. So if you pick back up Luke chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus goes on to say, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will instead give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? As mentioned beforehand, the betrayal of God as a good, loving father was a very scandalous idea for Jesus' followers. And this distance between God and humanity can actually be traced all the way back to the Genesis account. So we're actually going to pick up very briefly in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, the scripture will be on the screen. It's also going to be in those provided notes on our gathering guide. Moses, he writes this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Here we see the serpent talking to Eve in the garden of Eden and saying a half-truth, a lie. Interestingly enough, in Genesis chapter 2, God is referred to over and over and over and over and over again as Yahweh Elohim, or Lord God. But then we come to Genesis chapter 3. And interestingly enough, the serpent comes onto the scenes, twisting the words of God, creating half-truths, and drops God's personal name. Instead of saying Yahweh Elohim, he says Elohim. 
Scholars call this keeping the abstract, but dropping the personal. It would be like calling someone by their title, but not their name. I uh, teach public speaking at UMKC. I love it. It's the joy of my life. We start back on Tuesday, go ruse, woo! Um, but uh, I work really hard to make my environment, my classroom, safe space, one that students don't have to feel intimidated or worried or scared, especially in public speaking. And so I tell my students, call me whatever you want. Call me Cassie, call me Miss Farron, call me Professor Farron, call me Professor Cassie. I don't care whatever makes you feel most comfortable, whatever makes you feel more relaxed, whatever brings about the most appropriate closeness between me as your professor and you as the student. And if I were to come in midway through the semester and say, uh, y'all are no longer allowed to call me by my name and I must be referred to now as Professor of Public Speaking. They would all look at me and be like, what did we do, right? Like, she hates us. Why is there so much distance now? Why isn't she like me? And this is exactly what the serpent is trying to accomplish when he talks to Eve. He removes God's personal, his comfortable, his intimate name and says this abstract unknown being that you call God is stingy, power hungry, and indifferent to your problems. And unfortunately, as many of you know, if you know the Genesis account, humanity chooses to believe this lie. And our relationship with God is ruptured. We no longer have a true understanding of the God we pray to, a God who's personal and intimate. Instead, he's stoic. He's unmoved. He's to be treated with reverence, yes, but distance. Respect, but not the innocent love of a child who believes his father will give him eggs and fish when he's hungry. And this is why there's a certain reserve in the Old Testament regarding God's title as father. According to theologian N.T. Wright, uh, there are nearly half a million words in the Hebrew Bible. Yet God is only portrayed as father 15 times. But then when we turn the pages of scripture to the New Testament... Gone are the days of reserve or distance. There's a new tone, a new familiarity, a new narrative. Jesus calls God Father 65 times by the time you finish the Gospel Luke, and 170 times by the time you reach the end of John. Jesus confronts the lies spoken by the serpent, by the enemy, believed by humanity. And he says, I have come to restore the original name of God. He says, God is not simply Elohim. He is Yahweh Elohim. He is present. He is intimate. He is noble. He is father. He is not some far off dictator who cares less about you. He loves you so very deeply. I think Jesus chooses to expand on the quality of God, our father, in Luke chapter 11 through this really bizarre story of an egg, of a serpent, of a fish, of a scorpion. Because Jesus understood that to restore us in the world, 
he had to restore our relationship with the who. Without an understanding of God as a good father, we fail to understand our identity as Jesus, as Jesus's, uh, I'm sorry, we fail to understand our identity as the sons and daughters of God. And that's only made available through Jesus being God's son. Worship team, if you would go ahead and join me. I don't know about you, but like the disciples, I find myself pretty shocked with those first two words, our father. I find myself doubting whether God is truly intimate, whether he is really personal, and whether he really cares and loves me like a father does. But over and over and over again, through the life of Jesus, we are introduced to a God who shows fatherly love. We see it in the story of a son who takes his inheritance too early and a father waiting to receive him with open arms regardless of what he has done. We see it in the story of a woman who has done a whole lot of wrong in life and admits to it. And she's confronted with the scandalous love of a savior at a well. We see it in the story of a man who betrays Jesus in his darkest moment and then is greeted by the Savior on a beach in love, in love, in love. And it's only in the proximity to the Father God of love that Ephesians 3.18, we grasp how wide, how high, how long, and how deep the Father's love is for us. Therefore, we have got to stop thinking about prayer as simply just communication with God. Prayer is quite literally communing with God. To simply say we communicate with him places the focus once again on the how and not the who. And if we want to reorient ourselves toward the who of prayer, the Father God, we have to understand prayer as communion with him. The shocking revelation of the Lord's Prayer is that the intimacy that Jesus experienced with his Father, the love between a father and a son, is now available to us as his adopted children. You are no longer orphaned. You need not be consumed with a record of wrongs. You no longer need to live in distance. You can finally experience the love of the Father, which you so desperately missed as a child. Welcome to the family of God. And so when we have those moments, when we're like, God, I can't do it. Like, I'm not good enough. I didn't do all the things right this week. I messed up big time. Or when we have those moments where we're like, I cannot trust in a God who's supposed to be my father when I've never seen supposed to be like in my own life when we have those moments instead of getting stuck in a mire of discouragement paralyzed by fear what 
what would it look like if we simply opened ourselves up to him? What if we prayed without words and allowed God to simply be God? This is to focus on the who, but how do I do that, right? Some of you are thinking that sometimes. You know, we actually do this through practice that's commonly known as contemplative prayer. And contemplative prayer, as defined by the Handbook of Spiritual Disciplines, is a way of being with God without wordiness. Relying on God to initiate communion and Hill in his book, The Lord's Prayer, A Guide to Praying Our Father, describes the practice of contemplative prayer this way. He says, let your heart reign decrease. Know that you are already bathed in the love of your Father. Simply ask him for what you need with the assurance that the one who you're speaking to already is cupping his ear in your how extraordinarily simple this really should be no surprise to us because Jesus consistently emphasized over and over and over again how simple prayer was supposed to be like how uncomplicated it was he said in Matthew chapter 6 verse 7 through 8 when you pray don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do don't say a whole lot of words for they think they'll be heard because of their many words, their own righteousness, the how, not the who. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ever ask Him. And so this is my challenge to you this week. Start engaging in contemplative prayer, even if it's just for five minutes every day. It's as simple as sitting in the quiet of your living room, your bedroom, your kitchen and drawing your attention once again to the love of God. You will get distracted, I guarantee you. Your phone's going to go off. Your mind's going to quickly fill with the laundry list of things that you've got to do, right? But here's the deal. Every time your mind wanders, every time your mind strays, it's yet another opportunity for you to turn And in doing so day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, we may just find that our view of self as the loved son and daughter of God and our view of God as our father has been completely redeemed. So if you would, we're going to take some time to pray. If you would close your eyes with me. Maybe open your hands up towards heaven. Maybe rest your hands, your palms of your hands on your knees. Slow down your heart. Slow down your pulse. Breathe deep.
and over again that you are bathed in the love of the Father. Let it cover you from the top of your head down to the bottom of your toes. I know my God is love. Paul calls prayer without ceasing. Lord, help us in our human frailty, in our busyness, in our distraction to commune with you more and more every single day. We love you, Lord, and it's in your name we pray. Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.